Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 1.18, The 1620s in Plymouth. Last time, we examined the growing diplomatic relations between the Pilgrims and the Indians. We got the Pilgrims through their first winter and ended up burying about half the original passengers from the Mayflower, including the first governor, John Carver. This leads to William Bradford taking control of the colony, a position that he is going to hold for the majority of the next 36 years. This week, it is time that we move our story along. It has occurred to me that through the first four episodes on Plymouth, we have only covered about six months in time. This means for me to get us out to the 1650s as planned, it is going to take me like 800 episodes. So the goal for this week then is to talk about the first several years on the ground in Plymouth as we head towards our next great milestone, the explosion of population in 1630s Massachusetts. We are going to deal primarily with two questions for today. The first is going to be internal changes for Plymouth. This is going to include a new group of settlers and the relationship with the investors back in England. This relationship is largely going to paint the events of the next several years as the colony moves through its own internal growing pains. Second, we are going to look at the often rapidly evolving relationship between the Indian tribes and those same pilgrims. As we will see, those internal questions that we lead off with are going to directly affect the relationship with the Indian tribes. Likewise, the corollary is true as well. As the Indians' relationship with Plymouth changes, it is going to introduce new internal pressures that the Pilgrims must deal with. If all of this sounds confusing, stick around and we will make some sense out of this whole thing. Before we dive in for today, I want to make a comment about the sources that I'm using on these episodes. If you find that you just love the early colonial history, I want to strongly encourage you to read more about it. As I've mentioned before, there are essentially two main primary sources and a variety of secondary sources that I've been relying on. The two primary sources are of Plymouth Plantation and Mort's Relation. Both of these works are very easy to find and are actually available for free online. If you go to the website, uspoliticalpodcast.com, and check out the bibliography page, you can find the links directly online to both versions of the works. Even among the secondary sources I'm using, many of them are also going to rely on both Mort's Relation and of Plymouth Plantation. If you want to learn about Plymouth in all kinds of detail, I can't recommend enough that this podcast should just be your starting point. And this brings me to the final point on the subject of sources. My hope is that this podcast is not the end of your investigation into any particular topic. Rather, my hope is that the show opens up the doors for you to go out and dive into the actual sources themselves. That's where the good stuff is. To help out with this, I'm going to do my best to keep that bibliography up to date, though I will occasionally fall behind a few episodes, but be sure to check back often. I promise that I'm going to update my sources frequently. If you decide that you want to read more about a subject, that should be a pretty good place to start for you. Okay, enough with that for today. Let's head on back to Plymouth. Soon after becoming the president of the colony, William Bradford would begin dealing with problems from upset and impatient investors. If you'll recall, the agreement with the investors back in London is that the Pilgrims had agreed that for the first seven years, they would spend most of the days per week working for the company. For the Pilgrims, that is going to mean collecting the local resources for export back to England. The problem, however, is that for the first few months, the primary concern of the Pilgrims is just staying alive, not dying is the goal of the day. When the Mayflower leaves Plymouth in April of 1621, it did so empty. 
We've already talked about the stresses during the first few months, and the fact that about half the passengers of the Mayflower are now dead didn't help anything. Between finding a place to settle, building that settlement, and trying to survive the winter, the pilgrims failed to produce any tangible goods to send back on the Mayflower. When the ship arrived back in England without any goods, the investors were not amused. Thomas Weston was one of those investors not laughing at the situation. If you'll recall, we talked about Weston back in episode 1.14. Thomas Weston was the investor for the Merchant Adventurers who had been working directly with Robert Cushman. Weston decided that he needed to let William Bradford know just how upset he was about the situation. Weston would get his chance in November of 1621. That month, the Pilgrims saw their first set of new settlers arrive aboard the Fortune. On board were 37 new settlers, which helped offset the 50 or so who had died during that first winter. What the Fortune did not arrive with was any new provisions of mention, other than apparently some new suits from London. Sure, the Fortune didn't bring along new provisions, but at least the Pilgrims were going to look good in their new suits. And to be completely clear here, the fact that the Fortune showed up with no provisions is not an accident. This isn't that somebody back in London forgot. This is almost certainly meant to send a message along to the Pilgrims. You send us back the Mayflower without any goods on board, we're now going to send you new settlers without any new provisions. So let's not miss the fact that this was a very, very clear threat towards the settlers. Also on board the Fortune was a letter from Thomas Weston to William Bradford, letting him know that he was pretty upset over the entire thing with the Mayflower turning without being filled with supplies. Weston wrote, I durst never acquaint the adventurers with the altercations of the conditions first agreed on between us, which I have since been very glad of, for I am well assured that they know as much as I do that they would not have adventured half a penny of what was necessary for this ship. That you sent no ladding in the ship is wonderful and worthily distasteful. I know your weakness was the cause of it, and I believe more weakness of judgment than weakness of hands." A quarter of the time you spent in discounting, arguing, and consulting would have done much more. But this is past, etc. If you mean, bona fide to perform the conditions agreed upon, do us the favor to copy them out fain, and subscribe them with the principle of your names. And likewise, give us an account, as particular as you can, how our money has been laid out. And then I shall be able to give them some satisfaction, who I am now forced with good words to shift of, and consider that the life of the business depends on the ladding of this ship, which, if you do to any good purpose, that I may he feed from the great sums I have distributed for the former, and must do for the latter. I promise you I will never quit the business, though all the other adventures should. This is a very long way for Weston to basically say that the pilgrims failed to produce any goods because they were being lazy and weak-willed. The business was failing basically because everybody is just bailing out. But Weston assured the pilgrims that he was here to stay and that he would never quit on the pilgrims and their cause. And just a side note for right now, go ahead and keep that last part about never quitting on the pilgrims in mind for just a few minutes. We're going to be circling back around to that in just a moment. First, however, we need to deal with Weston calling the Pilgrims weak-willed. To say that Bradford was upset at this accusation is a huge understatement. Bradford was furious. 
If you're a baseball fan, you know those moments when a guy strikes out swinging at a ball three feet out of the zone and decides to use their bat to murder an innocent Gatorade cooler? Yeah, that's basically what William Bradford felt upon reading this letter. After all, who is Thomas Weston? This investor back in nice, safe England is calling him weak? It isn't like Bradford and the others were sitting around doing nothing that winter. They were trying not to die. Half of those who went on the trip were dead by the end of that first winter. On board the fortune was our old friend Robert Cushman. Cushman's immediate job was to help temper the blow that Weston's remonstrance must have felt like. However, Cushman, who by this time had become a trusted representative of the Pilgrims, was able to get them to sign a new charter. The charter, if you're wondering, appears to have been the same controversial charter that had initially been proposed back in England, the one that included a six-day work week for the company. With Cushman vouching for Weston being a trustworthy guy, the Pilgrims finally accepted this agreement. In response to this, Bradford would send a response back to Weston when the fortune left addressing the issue. Now, conveniently for Bradford, Weston had actually addressed the letter to John Carver, being unaware that Carver had now been dead for the last seven months. This allows Bradford to inform Weston that Carver was dead. And after taking a few other parting shots, Bradford takes another shot when he says to Weston that, At great charges in this adventure I confess you have been, and many losses may sustain. But the loss of his and many other honest and industrious men's lives cannot be valued at any price. This is basically Bradford telling Weston, hey, buddy, so, you know, Carver died from working, plus like half the other people who came over are now dead, and you're talking about money? You kidding me? Bradford would go on to defend the fact that there was not weakness of hands and further emphasize the great loss that they had suffered. When the fortune left Plymouth, it would be sent back completely filled with clapboard. Also heading back on the fortune was Robert Cushman, his stay in Plymouth being more of an extended vacation. Cushman did, however, leave his son Thomas behind in Plymouth in the care of Bradford. And as a quick side note, all that clapboard being sent back on the fortune will never actually make it to England. The ship is going to be captured by the French as a suspected enemy ship. And while the ship would eventually be cleared and released, the French decided to pull on to all those goods on board. So, bummer for the English. The fortune brought along 37 new settlers. This is a double-edged sword for the pilgrims. First, and importantly, they needed to replenish their losses from the previous winter, and this just about gets them there. Sure, they were still a little short, but hey, at least they're on their way now. On the other hand, the fortune came without any new provisions and 37 new mouths to feed. The Indians had helped establish crops in Plymouth, but it isn't like they are overflowing with food. Hunger is still a serious concern, and now there are 37 people arriving shortly before winter, 37 people who are probably going to want to eat. Likewise, the Pilgrims had now been in Plymouth for 11 months. They had become at least somewhat acclimated to the harsh conditions of the land. They knew how rough survival was. For the 37 passengers on the fortune, they had no idea and were pretty open with their fear. In order to deal with this, the Pilgrims had to cut their already meager rations as they went into the winter of 1622. Not a great start heading into that winter. Among the 37 passengers, there are a few names that I do want to bring attention to. Several of those on board were originally planned for the ill-fated Speedwell. Jonathan Brewster, the son of William Brewster, was one of the new colonists. Also on board was Thomas Prince. 
In time, Prince is going to become a major figure in the politics of Plymouth and would become the colonial governor three separate times. Just an interesting note that I also came about in regards to Thomas Prince. His descendant is Commodore Matthew Perry, who is better known to history just as Commodore Perry. Based on our current pace, I anticipate that we will talk about how Commodore Perry opened trade with China in something like 20,000 episodes, but rest assured someday he will make a return to the podcast. The other passenger that I want to mention is Philip Delano. Amongst the people descended from Philip Delano is the future president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So there you go, some more interesting family relations from the fortune. The fortune arriving is this double-edged sword that we've been talking about. It does help replenish the numbers of the pilgrims. However, it does not come with the supplies and it's going to put this additional strain on the colony. Beyond this, however, there are going to be additional struggles that are going to arise in the colony during this time. Namely, as more and more people come along, the role of the Leideners began to decrease in the colony. Following the newcomers being just a little bit too jovial on Christmas, Bradford would find himself upset that, number one, the newcomers weren't working, and number two, if they needed the day off, shouldn't they be spending it inside deep in prayer? This is going to be a minor matter right now, however, as time passes, these differences are going to begin causing problems in the colony. As we go along, we are going to begin seeing an increased amount of factionalism appearing in Plymouth and eventually throughout the New England colonies. Okay, so remember just a minute ago when Thomas Weston sent his remonstrance? In it, he made the big deal saying that he will never quit the pilgrims. Yeah, so that was sure cool of him. I mean, sure, he was upset and wanted to make sure that everybody was making money, but of course he would never quit the pilgrims. In June of 1622, Thomas Weston quit the pilgrims. Weston decided to sell all his shares in the company and move on with his life. However, because that wouldn't be enough, the method that Weston decided to use is particularly brutal. News of Weston's betrayal came aboard the Charity and the Swan in 1622. On board these two ships were 60 men who most definitely were not there to replenish the ranks of the pilgrims. Now, Weston had actually sent men along to start a new colony. But before going off to start their own colony, they decided to hang out in Plymouth for the first few months. Making matters worse, these weren't people who are going to just settle down and start working the land to provide for the community. They showed up on Weston's behalf, and they were there for one reason and one reason only, to make money. In so many ways, this is reminiscent of those early days in Jamestown. These 60 men were obsessed with finding ways to exploit their new home. Things like food and shelter and survival, yeah, those can wait, there is money to be made. The new settlers destroyed crops and did not do anything but push Plymouth to the edge of starvation. Following what must have been an insufferably long summer, Weston's new group of settlers left Plymouth and ended up settling a colony in a location known as Wessagusset. Wessagusset is located near where modern-day Wymouth is. Nobody in Plymouth was going to miss the group. However, their leaving meant problems of its own. Despite the peace formed the year before, diplomacy with the Indians was still a dicey prospect at best. Now, and I'm guessing that this isn't surprising, the group in Wessagusset wasn't exactly going to make things better considerable concern of fear by association spread throughout the colony. The last thing that Bradford or anybody in Plymouth needed right now was for these guys to go and mess up an already tenuous relationship. The members of the Plymouth colony would spend time carefully informing local tribes that they have nothing to do with those guys in Wessagusset. 
as we will see, that mission is going to ultimately be less than successful. So what comes out of the colony at Wessagusset? Well, it is going to be extremely short-lived. By the spring of 1623, the colony will be gone. The men who were there would end up joining fishing expeditions in the area, and the colony would just collapse. However, while the existence of the Wessagusset colony is going to prove to be very short, there would be long-lasting effects because of the colony. The long-term effects are going to lead to a long period of rising tensions and hostilities between the English and the Indians. So what happened to the Wessagusset colony? For that, we are going to switch gears and talk about one of our other topics for today, the evolving relationship between the Indians and the English throughout 1622 and into 1623. Having covered the internal changes to the colony, we are now going to step back and address the diplomatic relationships that were emerging. Last week, we spent our time talking about the beginning of the relationship with the local Indians. And while these were clearly a step in the right direction, things are going to remain complicated for a while. As I hinted at last week, the pilgrims by this point were figuring out that Massasoit is not the New England version of Powhatan. In fact, Massasoit is going to prove to have far less power than the pilgrims had actually anticipated. The initial problem was not just that Massasoit was not as powerful as he had wanted the pilgrims to believe, but he wasn't even the most powerful shaman in the area. Rather, the most powerful tribe in the region was instead the Narragansetts, under the leadership of their shaman, Kenicus. This is going to cause multiple problems. For Kenicus, he was sitting on top of a growing power base. He was not exactly thrilled to see an agreement between Massasoit and the pilgrims. After all, the last thing he is going to want is a rival tribe to suddenly have an alliance with the group that carries firearms and cannons. In late November 1621, Kenicus would fire his opening salvo by sending the pilgrims through Squanto, a bunch of arrows wrapped in a snakeskin. Squanto clarified for the pilgrims that this should be taken as a threat and should be dealt with with an appropriate response. The response was for Bradford to send back a snakeskin filled with gunpowder. While a little tit-for-tat was acceptable for threats, the pilgrims were also not ignorant of the reality of their situation. Sure, they had guns and cannons, and yeah, they knew that in a fight they could do some serious damage to any challenger. However, doing damage and surviving are two totally different things. Even with the reinforcements from the fortune, they were still going to be badly outnumbered. The Indians could launch arrows at a much faster rate than the pilgrims could reload their musket for another volley. This puts the pilgrims into an immediately tenuous situation. You need to get the respect of the local inhabitants and you must answer threats appropriately. However, at the same time, this is most definitely a fight that the pilgrims are not going to want to have. The most immediate solution was to properly fortify the town. Bradford writes that. But this made them more careful to look at themselves, so as they could agree to enclose their dwellings with a good, strong pale, and make flinkers in convenient places with gates to shut, which were every night locked, and a watch kept when they needed. Required there was also warning in the daytime, and the company was by the captain and the governor advised, divided into four squadrons, and every one had their quarter appointed them, unto which they were to repair upon any sudden alarm. And if there should be any cry of fire, a company were appointed for a guard with muskets, whilst others quenched the same, to prevent Indian treachery. What Bradford is saying here is that he basically wants to put a wall with locking gates around the town, 
From there, you divide the settlers essentially into quarters, with each group responsible for standing guard over one quarter of the fort. By the time the following march had rolled around, this project appears to have been completed. And again, as a side note here, remember a few minutes ago Bradford was getting angry over the new settlers being too happy on Christmas? It was the building of the fortification that they were taking the day off from. While the fortification was completed, the second part of the plan fell to Miles Standish, who needed to make sure that the colony had at least a rudimentary fighting force. This is a project that Standish would work on throughout the late winter and early spring of 1622. This all leads up to one of these stranger situations to happen. A situation that would end with the Pilgrims being plunged into a diplomatic nightmare that they neither wanted nor were fully prepared to deal with. Throughout the winter of 1622, there had been plans made by the Pilgrims to visit the Massachusetts tribe in order to trade furs. By this point, the Pilgrims were becoming increasingly skilled in the fur trade, which is going to become their primary export in the years to come. Before the trip to see the Massachusetts people, however, William Bradford and Miles Standish received a warning. During that winter, Hobomock, another member of the Poconoket tribe, had been living with the Pilgrims. Hobomock warned that the Massachusetts tribe had entered into an alliance with the Narragansett. Hobomock told Bradford and Standish that the plan was for the Massachusetts to slaughter the Pilgrims during their visit. With the head of the settlement cut off, the Narragansett would move in and seize control of the now fortified colony. If that wasn't enough of a problem, Squanto was implicated in the plot as having worked to organize the entire thing. It was decided that the trip to trade with the Massachusetts had to go on, otherwise starvation was going to become a very real risk for the Pilgrims. Miles Standish led the trading party. The second issue was figuring out what to do with the situation between Squanto and Habamak. The two men clearly don't like each other, leaving the Pilgrims with the question of who should they believe. In April of that year, Standish took 10 men, including both Squanto and Hobomock, to trade with the Massachusetts. No sooner had they left than a bloodied Indian arrived. Claiming to be a member of Squanto's family, he told the pilgrims that an alliance between the Narragansett and the Wampanoag had been struck and that an attack was imminent. Now, if you're saying, wait, the Wampanoag, aren't they the allies of Plymouth? Well, yeah, you would be right. Confused? Well, so were the people inside of Plymouth. Obviously, by this point, everybody knows that something is up. More than a few fingers were pointed in the direction of Squanto, based on the claims of Habamuk. Bradford, acting fast, fired the cannons, which was the alert to everybody to retreat back inside the fortification. Luckily for the pilgrims, this is all going down on a day without wind. The lack of wind means that Miles Standish and his men were still close enough to the colony to hear the cannon fire and quickly return. Upon returning to Plymouth, the question became who to trust, Squanto or Habamuk? As they were now pointing the fingers at each other and based on the unfolding events, one of them was lying. The decision was made to send Habamuk's wife to Massasoit to see what is up, unless you let either possible conspirator escape. Upon her return, the news she brought is that Massasoit had no problems with Plymouth, However, they had become aware of a plot by Squanto to overthrow Massasoit. Squanto had been working to grow his own power base for a while now. The hope was that by staging a false attack, he could get the Pilgrims to launch a war against Massasoit. In the ensuing power vacuum, Squanto himself would insert himself into that power. The Pilgrims, therefore, are going to be left with another situation. What to do about Squanto? Massasoit obviously wanted Squanto handed over. 
Under the terms of their treaty, he had a pretty good argument to be made that the pilgrims should in fact hand him over. And this is going to lead to several tense months between Massasoit and Bradford. Bradford wasn't terribly thrilled with the idea of handing Squanto to what would have been his death. Massasoit, however, was pretty adamant that he wanted the man plotting against him dead, and for good reason. Squanto, for his part, just kept pointing to Habamuk, saying that, yeah, you've got the wrong guy, it was that guy right there who was behind everything. Though by this point, it doesn't really appear that anybody actually believed him. Bradford, however, was beginning to run low on options. He was going to have to make a decision eventually. That is when Thomas Weston came to the rescue. As all of this is unfolding, two ships appear off the coast. William Bradford basically decides to point and say, Hey guys, look over there, it's a boat. I surely can't make this decision when there is a boat coming. They could be hostile and I now need to pay 100% attention to that boat and we can figure out the whole Squanto thing later. Those ships off the coast would prove to be the Charity and the Swan, which we talked about earlier. Massasoit's men, by this point, had become so frustrated with all the stall tactics that they essentially throw their hands up in the air and storm off. For now at least, both Squanto and Hubamuk are going to get to survive. The entire episode is going to damage, though not destroy, the relationship between Plymouth and the Wampanoag. This relationship is going to get worse in the coming years as Weston's new company would settle in Wessagusset. To wrap this week up, I'm going to discuss what brought down the Wessagusset colony, an event that is going to have very long-term effects for the future of the Plymouth colony. If you recall from a few minutes ago, the Ming coming over on the Swan and the Charity had done a lot to disrupt the food supply. Now that they had moved on to Wessagusset, Weston's men discovered that they also had crippling food shortages. Well, Plymouth had somewhat stabilized their crisis through some key trading for food by Edward Winslow, Weston's men were in serious danger of starving to death over that winter. The two colonies decided that it was probably in their mutual interest to work together to secure enough provisions for both colonies to get through the winter. One has to believe that despite how Plymouth settlers felt about the settlement in Wessagusset, there was truth to the idea that there is safety in numbers. Bradford might hate their guts, but should Plymouth be attacked, having another English settlement in the area might provide a little bit more protection. This would have been even more important now as the Pilgrims had learned that in the last few months, not all the Indians in the area were thrilled to have them there. Finally, along with the Charity and the Swan, came news of the massacre in Jamestown by Opashankano. All these factors coming together were enough that Bradford had agreed that having the colonists in West Augustus survive the winter was probably a good idea and to his benefit. The two groups went out on the Swan in November of 1622 to try to trade for some food. Also along for this trip was Squanto, who appears to have regained some trust. And while Squanto must have been relieved to have survived his close call months before, our English-speaking translator was working on borrowed time. After securing the food that they sought, largely with the help of Squanto, preparations were being made for a return to the colony. Right about that time, however, Squanto suddenly became violently ill. Within days, Squanto was dead. Though Bradford was apparently clueless to the possibility that Squanto's death had been anything more than a natural death, rumors persisted for years that this was actually an assassination. If Squanto had been poisoned by Massasoit, it really wouldn't be that big of a shock. After all, as long as he lived, Massasoit must have viewed Squanto as a continuing threat to his own power. However, regardless of if it was natural causes or a deliberate act, Squanto was dead.
Suddenly, it was Habamuk who was going to now, by default, have the ear of the pilgrims in Plymouth. Conditions in Wessagusset were miserable at best. Making matters worse is that in the spring of 1623, rumors of an Indian attack on Wessagusset and Plymouth became a serious cause for alarm. This isn't some minor warning either, it's coming directly from Massasoit, something that everybody needs to take seriously. Considering the source of the threat, Bradford had little he could do but be proactive in his approach. Suddenly, public enemy number one became Wudu Womit, a Massachusetts warrior. Of course, the problem remained to this point that the Massachusetts people had never actually acted in a hostile manner towards the pilgrims. Sure, they didn't like them, that was no secret, but they hadn't done anything about it. Miles Standish does not appear to have been too concerned with this and seemed more than happy to finally get some action. Standish assembled a small force and made his way to Wessagusset with the intent to bring the head of Wudu-Wamut back to Plymouth. After arriving, what follows is a few tense interactions between the two groups. The Indians were aware that Standish was busy scheming, yet had no interest in showing weakness to the Englishmen. Under the auspices of a feast of corn and pork, Standish was able to get Wudu-Wamut and another Indian named Pexuat to come into one of the Wessagusset homes. Both men were among the elite warriors in the Massachusetts tribe. Along with the two warriors were a handful of other tribe members, including several women. The English were represented by Standish, as well as three other Plymouth settlers. Also present in this room was Habamuk. As the meal began, Standish made a signal to the other settlers in the room, who quickly moved to seal the doors. Standish, in a rather bold move, jumped up to disarm Pexoit taking the knife from around his neck. Miles Standish proceeded to stab Pexwhite to death. Meanwhile, the other settlers in the room sprang on Wittawamut. Standish ordered that the Indians in the colony be killed. Wittawamut's brother, who had been in the room with Standish, was hanged. The leader of the Massachusetts ended up going into retreat after the massacre at Wessagusset. There were three Englishmen living among the Massachusetts people, all of whom would be executed for the actions of their countrymen. As Standish promised, he returned to Plymouth with Wedawamut's head on a pike. A handful of the women were taken prisoner by Standish and were later released by Bradford with a warning to the Massachusetts people. The Massachusetts, for their part, did not seem all that interested in a fight, and while they desired peace, they had little interest in going to Plymouth, where surely another massacre was waiting for them. As we are going to see moving forward, this attack is going to have a long-term impact on the relationship between the Indians and the Pilgrims. For all the diplomacy that the Pilgrims had previously attempted, they now proved just as unpredictable as the Indians had previously feared. Furthermore, after this attack, none of the local Indian tribes were all that anxious to trade with the Pilgrims anymore. In this way, the attack was actually a devastating blow for the Pilgrims along with the Massachusetts people. So, who did benefit from this? Massasoit. As the other tribes along the Cape Cod coast fled inland from the English threat, Massasoit was able to step into the opening and assert his newfound power. While it can be debated if there was ever a threat from the Massachusetts to begin with, the truth is that the man who informed the pilgrims of the threat against them and set this entire thing in motion had just seen one of his chief rivals eliminated. John Robinson wrote to Bradford regarding this attack and shared his deep concerns for the action. Robinson wrote to Bradford that, 
concerning the killing of the poor Indians, of which we heard at by first report, and since by more certain relation. Oh, how happy a thing it had been if you had converted some before you had killed any. Besides, where blood is to begin to be shed, it is seldom stanched after a long time. You will say they deserved it. I grant it. But upon what provocation and invitements by those heathenish Christians? Besides, you being no magistrate over there were to consider not whether they deserved, but what you were by necessity constrained to inflict. Necessities of this, especially of killing so many, and many more it seems they would if they could, I see not. Methinks that two principles should have been full enough, according to that approved rule, the punishment to a few and the fear to many. Upon this occasion, let me be bold to extort you seriously to consider of the disposition of your captain, whom I love, and persuade the Lord in great mercy, and for much good hath sent you him, if you use him. Robinson would go on in his letter to give caution to Bradford on how much he should trust Miles Standish. Robinson was rightly concerned that now that violence had begun in the colony, it would be impossible to contain future violence. Basically, an argument that bloodshed is a direct cause for more bloodshed. As we will see moving forward, tensions from the attack are never really going to go away. As we are going to see in the episodes to come, a lasting tension is going to remain long after the attack. All of the goodwill built up during those first years through diplomacy and trade was quickly wiped away in a swift blow by Miles Standish. The result not only sees a sharp decline in trade between the Indians and the Pilgrims, but the formation of new alliances between tribes to defend against the New English. This tension is going to eventually become a contributing factor to the Pequot War. As for the West Augusta colony, this basically marks the end of it. Those remaining in the colony ended up abandoning the entire thing to join English fishing vessels. Next time, we are going to look at the Plymouth colony as it moved towards a place of stability. Despite the devastation to their trade, over the next few years, Plymouth would find itself on an increasingly steady footing. So next time, we are going to come back and look at that growing stability and begin getting the colony ready for the Great Migration that is now just a few years away. As always, I want to thank you all for listening, and I will see you back here in two weeks as we continue our journey through Plymouth.